I'm Michael Holly, and you're listening to the Celtics Pride podcast on Celtics Blog. Welcome to the Celtics Pride Podcast on Celtics Blog. You can find us at Celtics Pride Pod. Please rate, review, subscribe. I am Adam Motenko. I am here, as always, with my younger twin brother, Josh Motenko. Yeah, nine minutes younger, uh, but definitely the better twin. So let's begin. Hey, little bro. And our good friend, Mike Minkoff. How's it going, gentlemen? I'm a, I'm a little concerned. We're going to have to talk uh, Josh back from like Hayden Pritchard for Rookie of the Year, but we'll see how it goes. Today we are discussing the past three games. The Celtics are one and two on the season with a win against the Bucks and losses against the Nets and the Pacers. We're going to discuss those games and we're going to talk about the upcoming games. Let's start with the Bucks. The Celtics win on a last second shot by Jason Tatum. The bank was open. He made that actually. John Corrales on his podcast said that the shot against the Pacers was closer than the one against the Bucks, which I found funny. Uh, Mike and Josh, what did you guys notice in that game? It seemed like we like we weren't playing well, and like this is true of both of the first two games. It was like we we weren't playing well. I could tell we're not playing well. And then I looked down at the score and we're like, oh, we're only down by two or it's a close game. Like if it, it seems like, you know, it, it comes down to like the reliability of the players and the continuity of the system and the coaching staff that keeps us in games when, you know, maybe Tatum's not having a good game and it's pretty obvious. And he's saying so after the, the game in his, his uh, post game press conference, you know, he's like, I, I didn't play well. And, you know, we watching that, I'm like, yeah, no, <laughs> um, but like we have this continuity, we have these guys back and everyone's getting a little bit better and everybody knows each other. And so I think we're able to stay in, in some of these close games, um, you know, because of that, and because we have good defense and um, I think offense beats good defense in this league. Uh, unfortunately, you know, it's no longer true that defense wins championships and don't tell my, any of my former players that I said that. Um, but, you know, like, in the first game against Milwaukee, I felt like that was true. Like they were just better than us offensively. And it took a miracle shot by uh, our best player to to bank in that win. And, you know, as that game, like as the shot went in, I was one of those people who was like, that's BS. You know, like, I can't believe that shot went in like a little, like we shouldn't have won that game. Like my wife even looked at me like, how come you're not happy about that? And I'm like, that's not, that's not the way to win games. Like, obviously I'll take the W. Um, I had the exact I, same feeling. Yeah. And, and there's a lot of uh, Celtics supreme optimists and people who cover the team who are, I think were probably upset with that type of reaction from the Celtics fan base of like, oh, okay, we'll take the win. But like, that wasn't a good way to win. And uh, I don't think I'm being a pessimist or an optimist in, in general these days. I think, you know, that's just a normal reaction. That's our one win on the season. And it happened in a, a pretty remarkable way. We got lucky. That that's real. We we definitely got lucky with the final outcome. Um, I, you know, one takeaway that I've had. So on our on our last uh, conversation after the 
after the preseason. You know, I you all were trying to tell me to to calm down. I was overreacting. Uh, that's ridiculous. I was appropriately reacting. Um, and you know, I think I was already after the Milwaukee game to to kind of offer you know say, say you're welcome really to all Celtics fans everywhere because clearly inspired by my rant, ranting and raving. Um, Marcus Smart has remarkably played with exceptional decision-making over the first two games on offense. Uh, He has, over the first three games, probably shot few enough bad shots, like really poor early shot clock shots, that you can actually still count them on one hand, which over the course of three games is fairly remarkable for Marcus Smart uh, from years past. Um, And Jalen Brown has been absolutely dynamic uh as a decision maker um showing the maturity that i was uh expressing great concern was lacking uh so yeah i will say you're welcome everybody clearly this was because of my rant on this podcast and nothing to do with you know the actual talent of the players or brad stevens and the coaching staff or anything like that um i'm like that's the whole reason it was an overreaction (laughs) (laughs) No, unimportant. Edit that out. I did. I did want, Mike. I did want to check in with you about the those those thoughts because, and and I wonder whether it had something to do with the with Brad Stevens' uh, talk with the team about everybody's role because Marcus has been playing the facilitator role. And that is definitely what he should be yeah. doing while um, Kemba Walker is out. His assists are up, and Jalen Brown has been really consistent. His assists are also up. Um, Marcus's threes well, are down, and I do not expect that to continue. But uh, we'll see. We'll see. I mean, he is he. You know, he's made it. He made it a point in the before. I think it was before the Bucks game to talk about his focus on shot shot selection. Uh, and if he, it's a catch and shoot, definitely take it. He has been sticking to that. Uh, he's been hitting them, which has been awesome. Um, so we'll see. We'll see how how uh, disciplined he remains. Um, you were upset going with Tatum back, too. Well, go b- before we get to Tatum. Going back to the Bucks game. No, I was actually okay with Tatum in the preseason. Uh, before we get back to the Bucks game, or going back to the Bucks game. You know, I was. I agree that we the loss was kind of or the win was lucky, but I I was really encouraged by that because I went into that game, especially coming out of the preseason based on my reaction, as we just talked about, pretty braced for us getting losing by double digits, if not getting kind of outright blown out. Um, so just to be in a really competitive game, game with the team that I thought was have thought of as kind of a surefire top two in the East, I thought was really encouraging. And frankly, I thought the way we played against the Nets um, for the first three quarters was also pretty encouraging like the nets are clearly a better team at the top talent if if kd is going to play like kd and Kyrie is playing the way he's been playing like that's just a better team than us um we didn't have to lose by 28 that's not awesome but uh you know i i was pretty encouraged by those those first two games and and even part parts of the indiana game the way we've been playing within those roles, but you mentioned Tatum. Uh, he has not been good <laughs> to start the season. Um, we have been much worse with him on the court. I was just looking at these numbers. Celtics are a negative 13.8 net rating 
uh, with him on the court, which is particularly, I mean, obviously early sample size, radar or, you know, sirens blaring, but he's always been kind of a net rating darling. Uh, you, you know, he, he was, he's historically been able to carry our second units um, and perform really, really well with them. So I don't know what's going up on with that. And Josh, when you mentioned kind of continuity with our system, I actually wonder how much of that quite rings true the same way without a Kemba or Gordon Hayward and everybody kind of shifting up just a little bit in their role, if that affects continuity a little bit. Yeah, I mean, Tatum, his assist-to-turnover ratio is only 0.9 right now too. So that, I think, says something about his ability to switch to a higher facility facilitation usage. Um, but as far as him, you know, people shifting into their proper roles, it's really difficult to look at that with, with the context that we have, right? With Kemba out, with us starting a double post uh, starting lineup with, with Thompson and Tice. Like it's just people all are already out of their roles or the roles that we kind of ideally like them to be in. Um, so it's kind of hard to assess that, you know, as well as the small sample size. So I don't want to speak too much to that. Yeah. What do you guys think of that double, double, the twin towers, Celtics, twin towers starting lineup? I think it's really good um, in terms of the coach getting trust in the starting lineup to start games well, but it's not ideal, you know, for a team to win at a high level. Uh, it's just kind of the lesser of two evils right now with us having so many young guys that the coach doesn't trust as much as the vets. I, I thought Brad Stevens hinted at this double post lineup, the playing more bigs in the preseason. And Josh, I think you, your reasoning was accurate there that it was because he trusts those guys. But um, looking at the teams that they played, they're actually playing a lot of teams that play more bigs. Uh, so Indiana twice here. I think you'll see that lineup again. Uh, because of of Sabonis and Turner, um, and it made sense, I, I think, against Brooklyn too. Um, I think Tice can guard KD as well as anybody can. I mean, he clearly torched us. Um, but and and just there's nobody else. So I mean, we'll talk more about the bench as we move along here. Where we are. Um, Clearly talking about all, I thought we might take each game at a time, but let's just continue talking about all three games. I, I found watching, it feels like we're living and dying with Tatum's threes at the buzzer here, down one each time, right? We were down one against the Bucks, right? Um, I believe we were down two. I think we won that game by one. Okay. Um, so it, it reminded me of Paul Pierce in his prime before the big three where he's just like playing hero ball, taking threes that that we don't necessarily need, at least against the Pacers. Um, I w- would much rather have seen Tatum get that ball in the high post against the Pacers and take a, a fallaway 18-footer than a 35-footer. Um, we're basically a prayer bank shot away from being 0-3, and the refs in their game review actually said that the the shot against the Pacers should have been called an offensive foul because Tatum kicked his his leg out. Tatum seems to know this. He commented on it that it was not the right shot and that he should force the refs to make uh, a call and um, and take take a better shot. Um, so I yeah, I think Tatum he's he's playing this this new role and as you said, Josh, he's he needs to play a larger facilitator role. There's he needs to take the ball to the basket more. His his free throws are down. And I think he knows all of this. And he's just kind of, th- this is, again, transitional. 
and and he's we're, we're learning as we go here, but it's going to be a bit painful. We're going to get some losses along the way as we are. Yeah, Adam, I love the analogy to you know Paul Pierce before the big three came. Um, yeah, I just it's so spot on because Pierce really did have to carry the load, but he was way further along in his career and had matured to a level where he understood like the final seconds of the game are the time to ISO or the end of the shot clock. That's the time to ISO. I feel like what the Celtics are doing now and, and kind of our downfall in the playoffs is we'd start to think like, all right, it's the fourth quarter or it's, you know, seven minutes left, six minutes left. Let's start doing like last second type plays. Let's start ISOing now. And at that point it's way too early. Like we're giving up lots of possessions. We're giving up leads. We're, we're, giving up momentum just because we're changing our style of play um, knowing that we shouldn't be doing that. Like guys are saying all the right things. Tatum's saying all the right things. He knows better, but we're still kind of doing this immature style where we're, we're going to ISO plays and one-on-one stuff, you know, way before we need to. It's hurting us. Yeah. I, hurt I, well, in the I felt like the, the, there were two takeaways I had from all three of these games. One is that there feels like there's a lot of sloppy turnovers now that is not actually true about the um, the Bucks game. The turnovers that game were really low, but there were two bad ones towards the end. Um, and and it's it still kind of feels like preseason a little bit with the with the ramp up this year. So you can attribute it to that. And number two, it feels like there's a lot of one on one offense. It feels like everybody's just kind of taking turns. Tatum and Brown, a little bit of Thompson and Teague as well. That's not the offense okay. I want to see. So real quick on that. For speaking of one-on-one offense. I'm a huge Tristan Thompson fan. Very excited about what he's going to bring to this team and what some of what he's already brought. He hasn't had a amazing start so far, but he, he brings some toughness. We've seen it, some offensive rebounding. He does not need to bring one-on-one, like work it into the post drive starting from 20 feet out at away from the basket that is not what we need from tristan thompson that has been hideous to watch he did it against the pacers at least once or twice i think he's had at least one i'm just going to put my head down and work uh offensive possession each game and it's been absolutely horrendous to watch um uh, i love his the the grit on the boards i love uh his his uh defensive intensity um i hate all of that offensive possession, anything other than like getting a nice gimme pass right in the middle of the lane and, and doing one of his short hooks. Uh, I would like him not to do <laughs> on offense um, about Jason Tatum real quick. Uh, going back to that comparison you offered there uh, with, with Paul Pierce, early career, Paul Pierce, there is a lot of comparison, but while you were saying that I, I just pulled up, uh, from from stathead.com, the comparison between Pierce and Tatum over their first three seasons of their careers, respectively, uh, specifically looking at free throw attempts. So Pierce averaged about seven a game. Tatum has averaged about four a game. This season so far, I believe Jason Tatum has shot four free throws. That includes two that he got on a fast break yesterday and two that he got at the very end of the game when uh, a foul was basically just like given um, for the whole those year? were his only yeah. four free throws for the entire season. Yeah. Jason Tatum, he, he knows what he has to do in theory, but he's not doing it. Um, and Josh, you have been 
far readier to throw around the S word with Jason Tatum. Um, I, I still think it's too early, but it's getting very, very, very close to, for me to, to start tossing that label out. He has to figure out how to generate free throws. And that he label has is? To, has to, has to. That label is what now? The S word is soft. <laughs> For those oh, that couldn't yeah. figure it out, like Adam, and needed it spelled out. Just, it's S-O-F-T. Just thinking about our listeners. Um, yeah, he's look, he's he is a little bit soft. He is. <laughs> and this is the free throw numbers back that up. And he's young. He's still got time to toughen up and to grow out of that. I think that's part of immaturity, is you don't really want to mix it up. You know, and when you're a star like that, like you don't so, really want to go into the contact. Like you want to preserve yourself. That's that's one kind of mentality. I, and it may be the kind of mentality that gives you him a longer career, you know. But he's talking like he wants to do that. He's you know supposedly during the off season, which was short, with Drew Hanlon, he supposedly worked on finishing through contact. He came back a little bit bulkier, a little bit more weight, and I don't know if that was intentional or he's just filling out because he's getting to that age. But like all of these signs show that. Yeah, you should be getting more than 1.7 free throw attempts per game or whatever he's getting. Yeah, I mean, the the reason I specifically pulled up the comparison of the the early career numbers and and the age was a little different. Pierce's career started when he was 21. Jason Tatum, as we all know, was and remains 19. Um, but the the great the great offensive players that generate free throw attempts had a tendency to do that from the start of their career. Like that is not something that like exponentially grows from what I've seen um, in players over time. So that, I mean, that is a bit concerning with Tatum and it was frankly a flag about him that he fell in love and he was too in love with kind of the, at that time it was a long twos in college, but that, you know, that was right. one of the things that that was raised for him pre-draft. So um, and, and the thing that I would worry about, and, uh, I'm, I'm forgetting who had a tweet about it earlier, earlier today. Um, we're recording on, on Monday evening. Uh, but you know, it was a tweet saying in all seriousness, I wonder if Jason Tatum had in the back of his mind, Malcolm Brogdon stripping him like two times already this game when he tried to dribble past him. And I think there's a truth to that in that. Jason Tatum doesn't have a particularly quick first step. He's so long. He's not explosive on the dribble drive. Um, you know, if he gets a seam, he's able to take advantage of it and get and get towards the hoop or to the hoop. Sometimes he uses, uses his length to avoid contact instead of going through it. Um, but he's, you know, he, he's not, he, he more often kind of draws an offensive foul when he tries to like go through someone and then, uses his arm to push out uh then he successfully kind of gets the type of contact that gives gets him to the line so i think you know i think kind of the way his athleticism works has not shown itself to be super conducive to drawing fouls uh, there are, there are things he can do like reintegrate the jump step into his game which he did for like a month and a half in january and february of last year and it was wonderful um but but it's you know, it's a trend that needs to needs to change for Tatum yeah, to be the player the, we want him to be. I think the fact that he is that he obviously is conscious of the issue is a huge step in the right direction for any young player. 
Um, yes, it's a little worrisome that he hasn't transitioned to actually doing it on the court, uh, but you know, there's plenty of time for that to happen. And what we're talking about here is like, if he doesn't figure that out, it's the difference between him like ending up as more of like a T-Mac type of career than, you know, some other players that he's been compared to, like a Kevin Durant or a Kobe Bryant or, you know, some of those like elite, elite, super upper echelon historical type players. So, you know, we're still talking about a Hall of Famer here. That's not like over, over uh, do it. Yeah, the question so, is, does, does he have those rings? <laughs> Durant, exactly. Durant, by the way, uh, average is eight free throw attempts for his career, and it was higher in his first three years. Tatum is only averaging three and a half. Um, I, I, I'm with you, Mike. Um, I, I, we got to see that shift. And, and I mean, this is a development year for a lot of these guys. This is a new role for him. I think he's working on it. It's very early in the season. But right now, this team is not very good. Um, that Indiana game, they should have won that. They had an 11-point lead that they they came out. I think it was like an 11-0 run that Indiana went on to begin the third quarter. And even with that, I, they still should have won that game. Um, those are the kinds of games that good teams win. And this team is not deep enough right now uh, and and doesn't have the the consistency on offense to be able to um, – to take over, especially against good teams. But the, so what was so weird about the Indiana game, this was not, this was not like a depth issue to me. I mean, frankly, our bench was better. <laughs> was more like Peyton Pritchard played really well. Yep. Um, Robert, Williams, at the end. Robert Williams played really well. Um, what didn't go like our starters came out in the first quarter to a tremendous start and then immediately started playing lax and making bad decisions, gave up our lead in, right away. Um, with We had seven first quarter turnovers, I believe. It was, it was really, really frustrating. Um, just a lack of focus and attention to detail. Yep. Um, I think what, you know, I don't... I just, I, I don't know. I, I, the, the team is, it is definitely early. I mean, Adam, I think you and I were talking about like a five and 10 or six and nine start to the year. So, you know, I, I briefly allowed myself more optimism after we won the bucks game, but, uh, feeling, feeling pretty good about that early projection. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't hopefully these guys will develop um, in the the next month or so the way that they'll need to. Josh, coming back to this one-on-one offense thing, I mean, this is the kind of thing, this taking turns going one-on-one or using a pick and roll. Uh, that's something that my eyes are seeing. And I, I'm, I'm curious about what I'm missing from a coach's perspective about uh, the way that these players are playing within their roles, within the flow of Brad Stevens' offense. Yeah, it's it's something I question in terms of what is the head coach's reaction when he sees the one-on-one iso ball happening earlier than he wants it to. You know, I'm sure he's preaching that this is the type of thing that you want to do the last few possessions of the game, any end of shot clock situation, like those are the times when when you want to iso. Um or or when, you know, your star or stars are feeling it. You know, then you want to feed the pig and, and go at those guys and, and give them, give them more opportunities to get hot. But 
the idea that you're hot when you're not or that the game's on the line and someone needs to make a play. And so that means as a young star, I'm going to take the shot. Like as a coach, you're seeing that and it's a really fine line because you don't want to lower anybody's confidence, especially someone like Tatum. So you don't want to overcoach that, but you do want to show it in film and you want to make it some kind of point of emphasis. Um, even if it's like a one-on-one conversation with Tatum, not in front of the, his teammates type of thing. So it's, you know, Brad Stevens is the type of coach who's going to want to make sure that that we're doing things the right way, you know, and that the basketball gods are looking down on us and, and rewarding, you know, playing the game the right way. And so, and that's one of those aspects that goes into playing the game the right ways. We don't take bad shots. We don't take good shots. We take great shots. You know, we make the one more pass to get a great shot. When you could have shot that one, it would have been a good one, but we could get a great one. And that goes until, you know, the last second of the shot clock or the last few possessions of the game when someone really now does have to make a play. And that's what Paul Pierce was so good at. That is what Jason Tatum is so good at. He proved it in game one with the bank shot against the Bucks. And um, it's... Wait, what did he prove there? He proved that he hit a game winner. Uh, it was a terrible shot. <laughs> clutch, baby. But, but the a terrible shot. Is, the clutch gene is in that guy. Sure. He's, and he has and he has the moves. He has this the the step back, the side step three. Like he's got those moves to be able to create his own shot whenever he wants. We just got to temper when he does that. That's all. Yeah, that I is, mean, that, you know, but that's the guy we're going to at the end of the game. Yeah, the, I mean, the real the real issue is he needs that to not be the only like. Yes, he can get that step back or side step three whenever he wants. But if he complements that with like. Um, more effective way to to bait his defender into thinking he's going to that and then driving past him then it's a game changer sure right someone had a another another celtics fan had a tweet earlier that the last six times in like the last 10 seconds of a game uh where we've been tied or down one and then it was in one of the instances we were actually up one that tatum has had it it's been a a fade away jump shot every single time yep so that's the problem it's not it's not a question of whether he has the skill or talent to get that shot off um and that he whether or not he can hit it he can and that will be a lethal weapon for him you know uh, james harden has shown how devastating uh you know a top-notch step back or sidestep three-pointer can be um but James Harden is also one of the best guys at getting to the free throw line in the league, right? Like that, that combination is what makes James Harden almost unparalleled in the history of the game as an offensive force. Tatum doesn't need to get there, but he needs to get, he needs to add the other dimension of getting to the line and putting pressure on the defense in a different way and, and having the ball handling skills and strength to do that consistently. And if he does that, he's going to score 30 a game. Yeah. So in summary, there's really just two things we want Tatum to work on. One is you get to the free throw line more often. And two is that self-discipline on when is it really a time when you have to take that shot, when you have to make the play. Because if you can facilitate for someone else and get a great shot, that's the self-discipline that turns you from an immature star into a superstar. Um, and, And it's just interesting, Adam, you know, the question you just asked is, there's some self-discipline on the coach's part as well of how much to coach that out of him. 
and how much to let him figure that out on his own, Mm -hmm. which is something we've talked a lot about on this podcast and especially during the playoffs. You know, Brad Stevens is a guy who likes to let players figure the things out on their own. He doesn't want to take a timeout and explain it to you because if you can figure it out on your own, it's going to be ingrained faster and come out on the court. Yeah. So it's it's just a little bit of an awkward fit right now when you've got these two people, the two figureheads of the team, kind of practicing and working on their self-discipline and it's, it's not a it's not a seamless fit as of right now i have a i have a, a quick um thought on that related to stevens because i i you you nailed it right on the head in the conversations we've been having josh about um how much to coach that type of stuff out of the players and and what steven's tendency historically has been i think there's been a a subtle but noteworthy shift by Stevens in the early season in the way he's publicly characterizing some of the points of emphasis for the team in a way that I don't feel like he's done, particularly Mm -hmm. him coming out and saying, we need to be an efficient team Mm -hmm. and execute, you know, execute with a high degree of efficiency. I don't recall that ever being an external talking point. He also came out after the game saying, you know, uh, last night's game against the Pacers saying that was, you know, Tatum was an option, uh, but that fadeaway was a tough shot. Um, Basically, which to me, again, it's this is as like publicly critical as I think I've ever seen or like pointed publicly as I, I feel like I've seen Stevens be. He's he's putting out there in a way he hasn't and using the external pressure of expectations in a way I don't think he has previously to, to make it clear that there are certain standards being set for the players and what they're supposed to be doing um, that, you know, that, that they need to be kind of held to account on. And I I think that's an important tool in the coaching tool belt, at least in the NBA uh, that Stevens has underutilized to this point. So, you know, I think he could be stronger than that sometimes, but I think it's really encouraging and, and to me is indicative of kind of a self-reflection by him and, and thinking on things he could do more effectively. Uh, I think it's encouraging that he's done that in the early going. And maybe, yeah, I don't know, do you think I'm reading too much into that or do you agree? No, no, I totally agree. I think it's a really wise point that you're making. I did not see that and... It's it's super interesting from all the perspectives you gave, but also, you know, Adam's been on this podcast talking about the, you know, the front office has basically explained to everyone that this is a developmental year, and I don't know if I agree with that. Um, but if you're the coach and you're it's your what eighth year now, and you've you're known as the guy who gets developing teams to overachieve and in the last few years you've been making conference finals you expect to win you're not about to take a step back and do a developmental year like maybe this is the coach saying like okay even if the front office is saying that and even if it's true like i'm competitive forget that i'm competitive i want to win and in order to win we got to take care of the ball and you know maybe even like a year and a half two years ago you wouldn't be calling out these young guys in public like that but maybe now they can handle a little bit or maybe as a competitive coach, you're going to test them and see, can you handle it? Like, can I call you out in public a little bit? How's that going to make you react? Because I'm not trying to take a step back this year. I think that's a really perceptive observation, Mike, especially on the heels of what Josh was saying about about uh, Stevens um, uh, letting the players figure things out themselves. 
he also came out and talked about roles uh, and and how people were trying to play roles that were not theirs. He came out publicly and, and called the team out, I think today or yesterday, saying that we need to become our best selves soon, really quickly. We need to figure this out really right. soon. Um, and that's totally accurate. And I think that's that competitive piece that Josh is talking about. When you, I mean, Stevens could have drawn up a play to get Tatum the kind of shot that I was hoping that he would take or to do a pick and roll with Jalen Brown and, and whoever the defense keys in on, the other guy gets an open shot. He didn't. He chose not to drop a play. And we know about his, his uh, ATOs. Um, this feels kind of active on Steven's part. Like, he, like you're right, Mike. It, 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 I, I would not be surprised if he said, I'm going to let him take that shot and we're going to see what happens. And then I'm going to speak about it publicly. The expectations are already there. I'm not shifting those. I'm just putting a spotlight on it. And, and Tatum is figuring it out. Because yeah, he made, I mean, Tatum made comments that, that that was not the right shot. He knows. Yeah, which is good. I mean, and and Josh, he said this earlier, the fact that he's aware of it is is really positive. Um, and Tatum has shown over the years uh, a really kind of elite ability to kind of pick up new new skills and, and, and adopt them. And he showed signs last year for a stretch, as I mentioned earlier, of, of being able to generate and get to the line consistently as well. So, you know, it's there. Uh, he need, it, It's clearly not a firmly rooted habit uh, in that he goes back to his, you know, old tendencies, which, and he, he, it's probably is always going to lean jump shot, like in his heart of hearts. I don't think he can totally rewire that, but he, he certainly needs to, to shift it. Um, and let me say one more thing too. This, this is a perfect storm of culture, character, and mental toughness kind of all at the same time um, in terms of the coach calling the player out, but the player already knows, so it's nothing new. There's no, like, it's not like you're using the media against the player. You're just using the natural consequences of the pressure that already exists and highlighting it and seeing how that affects the player, right? But we have a team full of a bunch of nice guys. And, you know, as, as a junior college coach, I recruited and created kind of the antithesis of most junior college teams, which is super athletic, super low IQ, low GPA teams, but, you know, a bunch of studs who are just, you know, really good on the court and mature on the court, but maybe not so much in life. Um, and in recruiting a bunch of nice guys myself, the first couple of years, it was like we had no toughness. We had no dog. We had no grit. And those were words that we used in team meetings about what we were trying to teach the guys. And what we realized is like it's very difficult to teach those guys. Um, and I think what we're seeing is that there's, you know, we got a bunch of nice guys on this team, some dogs. We got Marcus Smart. We got Tristan Thompsons. We got some guys, you know, who, who can handle themselves like on the court. But this is a perfect example of we're like as men, even as young men, as we as young as we are, we're able to have these kinds of conversations. We're able to maturely handle them. And now we have to go on the court and show that same kind of maturity that we know we have off the court in terms of our mental toughness on the court. And I think it's it kind of shines a light on how special and great it is to be a Celtics fan and to be one of these players on the team and, and a part of this kind of culture. It's really unique and it's really special and, and I love rooting for it. We need to discuss 
our early impressions of new players, Jeff Teague, Tristan Thompson, Peyton Pritchard, the Williams brothers, Shemi, and we need to discuss the upcoming games. We're going to do all of that right after this. All right, Peyton Pritchard is averaging 20 minutes a game. He is firmly in the rotation right now. Uh, Mike, I, I, I was thinking about you because you hate it when Danny Ainge drafts little guards, and I'm watching Pritchard on the floor. He seems small to me, uh, especially because he's playing with Jeff Teague often, and he's not the ball handler. Um, so it's just kind of a small lineup, but clearly he's confident. He's hitting his shots right now. He shoots from deep. He's fights on defense. Uh, Mike, what what are you what are you thinking about Danny Age's pick here? I mean, he has been one of our best bench players. It's it's not a steep competition. Yeah, <laughs> the, the, the landscape. <laughs> it's not a crowded landscape. But uh, look, he's he's showing he's de- deserves to be on the on the on the court uh, against the Pacers. He was really 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 solid, uh, and and he's been fine in every game. Uh, he hasn't he hasn't been a, a total negative at any point, in my opinion. Um, he he does he does look and and seem a little small, but. I mean, not to not to you know toss dirt on a guy that that doesn't need it, but you know just compare Peyton's contributions already at this stage in his career to someone like Carson Edwards, and it's um, you know the different the difference in who belongs in the NBA and who doesn't is is uh, instantly evident. So um, he's 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 a good pick. He's he's playing well. I don't think his ceiling is overwhelmingly high. Uh, he's, he's never going to be like an elite player in the NBA, but, um, you can, you can already see the outlines of what his career, uh, could and probably will look like, um, based on his early performance. You guys see the killer instinct or no? (laughs) He's not afraid. Uh, and, uh, I I'll give, I'll, I'll give credence to your killer. I mean, I just don't even understand, what a say, killer instinct it? label means for a guy like Pritchard. Like he's not ever going to be the guy taking the last shot uh, or maybe not, not ever, but um, very unusually, but he was playing, you know, in the last six minutes of the fourth quarter of a tight game against the Pacers uh, last night. And, yeah. and he, he should have been, um, he was, he was, well, he maybe should have been, he was certainly better than a lot of other guys that were seeing, time on the floor yesterday so uh but he's very clearly not afraid um and not the the game is not too big for him at the nba level the moment is not too big for him he shoots with uh an intense amount of of confidence um he's in the right spots uh he he's making you know he's hustling and, and playing with kind of uh tenacity even though undersized on defense um, yeah, I, I think there's a lot to appreciate about what he brings. I, I, I still think there's only so excited I can get about him because there's only so much he's going to be able to do. But the fact that he's just a solid contributor that I think you can rely on because of the effort and, and intensity he's going to bring, um, I think that's that's worth quite a bit. Certainly worth a late first round pick. I have a prediction. In the next 10 games, Peyton Pritchard is going to go off for 20 points or more. And in order for that to happen, he, I mean, this guy can really shoot, but his teammates aren't looking for him yet. 
They're not trying to find him open for threes. I'm thinking, I thought of this one, Mike, when you were talking about Tristan Thompson's uh, oh, let me get mine. And I'm like, Peyton's open for three. Why don't you dish it out to him while you're double teamed? Uh, and defenses are leaving him open. They they know that he can shoot, but they're not really keying in on him and, and ensuring that he is never open. I think that um, I think that he's going to get an opportunity in the next ten games, and he's going to show out at least one night. In Tristan's defense, he wasn't looking for anybody. It wasn't just Peyton Pritchard. <laughs> he's looking for number one. That's Josh. Um, what do you think? Well, I think first of all, Adam, that's we have bold predictions here from Adam Otenko. Uh, I guess your crystal ball says a guy who scored 16 points in a preseason game and 13 points in the last game is going to have 20 points in a game in the next few games. Like, yeah, come that, on. that, that is, uh, he's, that's already, fair. he's, he's almost that's, there. That's totally fair. Little, little bros right on this one. Wow. Um, but look, that's Peyton a big Pritchard, deal. Peyton scoring 20 points. That's a huge deal. Come on. But he's already scored 16 points in a preseason game. He that's just preseason. I don't care about preseason. It don't matter. Okay. Um, uh, He's got a killer instinct. I know it's difficult to say, like it feels awkward coming off the tongue just to, to say killer instinct in the same sentence as saying the name of a, a super role player. Uh, but, you know, I recommend yeah. all the listeners just over the next week, like maybe two or three times a day, just say out loud, Peyton Pritchard's killer instinct. It'll, it'll get easier. Um, I hate these... that we're all agreeing on this. <laughs> I haven't fully agreed, to be clear. <laughs> I I don't know what okay. I still do not know what killer instinct for Peyton Pritchard means in the the, the context context of his role. But well, take Josh's advice Josh. and just try try. I'll just keep saying it, yeah. and then then it'll yeah it'll grow on me. Through <laughs> osmosis, you'll understand as you practice, just like Got all it. things grasshopper. Um, so he's he's good. He's really good. He's better than expected, right? But to a point. Like in the Nets game, he was just getting killed in the pick and roll because, you know, you got to go over the pick and roll if you're guarding a shooter. And if that guy doesn't shoot and he drives in and you're a little guy with no length to challenge like that mid-range pull-up, that means that the the big man defender is stuck having to both guard the roller and to guard the guy who's come off the ball screen because you're just too small behind him. you got no length. You can't challenge anything. So they were just picking and rolling him to death. And I don't know if that means he, he may be unplayable in the playoffs. We got plenty of time to figure that out. Um, but, you know, he's, he's a joy to watch. Just, just seeing the closeouts of the defenders when he catches the ball beyond the three-point line, you know, it, it's, it opens up everything when you have a jump shot like that. Um, and we're seeing that the NBA defenders are already respecting his jumper. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot to like about Peyton Pritchard. Um, you we guys were talking. We yeah. don't know what his role is going to look like once Kemba Walker comes back, but he's making a case to have one. Who- well, so it was interesting, you know, in one of these games, the national announcers, I think it was Mark Jones, was saying, you know, Peyton Pritchard is a guy who who's taken over Carson Edwards' minutes, and every Celtics fan, oh my Celtics god, fan I remember that, <laughs> knows that Carson Edwards hasn't been getting any minutes, and so you know he's kind of played himself out of the rotation. No one needs to take over him his spot because he he's played himself out of the spot. Um, and and I, you know it's been fun to watch the guys like Chris Webber talking about how he's the Bob Cousy Award winner now playing for the Celtics. Just a great storyline, uh, yeah, for for a young rookie. And you know, isn't it like isn't it just like Danny Ainge to get a steal late in the draft? who at least in the early goings is playing more than an outplaying 
the middle first round pick. I was going to say, this is where everybody listening is saying, what about the, (laughs) this is where everyone's like, how did Danny Ainge do with that number 14 pick? Well, so let me ask Josh from a coach's perspective, especially like it's, it's killing me a little bit, not seeing Neesmith out there. He needs to be getting run. We need him. Romeo's not even available right now. Uh, we need we need backup minutes. We need to be developing him, and so he needs to be showing so little uh, or struggling so much that he's not just not playable right now. Um, there was a a thought out there that maybe Brad wasn't playing Neesmith yet because the teams we were playing were too good so far. But like, come on. Well, Brad kind of said that Did himself. He? Yeah, but but I mean, this is simple. This is, from the coach's perspective, you play the guys you trust. Brad Stevens trusts Semi Ojale more than he trusts the rookie. And as fans, we can hate that as much as we want, but we're not on the bench making decisions about who plays when. So do you have a thought as to why he doesn't trust any Smith yet? Yeah, I, th- I just think reactions, defensive rotations, you know, like he's not terrible in any way. There's nothing glaring that stands out to me. Um, but you just do see some typical rookie mistakes and Brad Stevens doesn't want to see that on the court right now. And I think that's why you re-sign a guy that all of us hoped you know you would not pick up his his team option for Semi Ojale. Um and I think the more Semi Ojale misses shots and the more he plays down to what the fans are used to seeing out of the guy, the more you're going to see the rookie, you know, especially as time goes on and he gets acclimated a little bit more. Um, but I I have tons of confidence that this young rookie who's really smart is going to be able to adapt quickly and learn on the fly. And look, if we end up not seeing him play much because Ojale is actually playing out of his mind, like he did, you know, uh, getting some dunks on dunking on guys and, and screaming primal screams and showing off his muscles, like actually hitting some threes. He's shooting 40%, right? So far, it's only three games, small sample size. But he has dribbled without Ojale. losing it on oh, multiple occasions, Josh. I know. I know. He's showing, like you said in one of our text message threads, Mike, like, is this the same Semi Ojale? Like, who is this guy? Right. And then all of a sudden, like, it's almost like on cue after sending that text, he comes back down to earth and makes a boneheaded play, right? But uh, look, he's still not one of my favorite players. He's still one of my least favorite Celtics of all time. And that's, that's a short list. Uh, Todd Day is on that list. I was just thinking of him. <laughs> and Shemi Ojale is on that list. So, like, would I rather see the rookie play? Yeah. And does he have a transferable skill that we're already seeing transfer to the NBA in his shot? Yeah. But, you know, trust takes time to build from a coaching staff and from a head coach. And that, you know, you just need to show you that you're about the details. In due time, he'll play. Okay. Quick thoughts on Teague or Thompson or the Williams brothers. Yeah, um, I got Mike, do you mind if I go on Thompson? Go for Since it. We've already been talking about him. I just want to close the book on Thompson. I feel like the 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 things that he brings to the table as a self-proclaimed Marcus Smart at the forward or center position, you know, we knew that coming in and it's just beautiful to see. All the hustle, all the heart, the contagious work ethic, the rebounds. I mean, we thought Ennis Cantor was a good offensive rebounder. Look at this guy Tristan Thompson just how he's beasting people and getting to the boards. Um, he's setting great screens. The dribble handoffs has been, have been really patient and he's got a great feel for initiating re-screens, right? So if you dribble handoff, that's the same thing as that guy coming at you with the ball and you're just setting a ball screen, right? So a dribble handoff is a ball screen. Then that guard is coming right back 
around. And then, you know, depending on how the defender plays that, they can go back around the screen again. So having a guy like Thompson, who's a vet, who knows just how to be patient, how to read that, when to leave the screen and roll, knowing that you don't need to rescreen again, it kind of brings some calm to the ball handler, many of whom are pretty young on our team. So it's, it's kind of nice to have that savvy. Um, and, you know, as we all know, we, we've got players who like to use that ball screen and snake back into the, the teeth of the defense. Um, so Thompson's really been helping with that. Uh, he does leave some shots around the rim short. And I remember that from his time in Cleveland. Like if we go to him in the post to try to get a bucket, it's not my favorite play. I do see him kind of short arming some things and I don't see him as being very reliable as a post scorer. Again, very similar to Marcus Smart. Like you're not going to rely on him for any offense. Anything he does on offense that's good is a bonus as, as far as scoring the ball. Uh, but everything else he brings to the table besides scoring is, is just such a blessing to see. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, you know, the the one thing that has not yet translated with Thompson um, has been a real robust uh, defensive impact. The Celtics as a whole are actually have been pretty putrid um, in their defensive rating. Uh, according to NBA.com, they are the fifth worst defense in the league and the worst of all teams that have played at least three games um, or three games. Yeah, no one's played more yet. Uh, with a 116.9 defensive rating. Um, obviously, Thompson's not solely responsible for that, but he he's one of the factors. Uh, he was on the court quite a lot against Indiana when uh, none other than the vaunted uh, rim-running threat of Doug oh, McDermott yeah. uh, got to the hoop at will against us with nobody effectively cutting off the lane uh, against the same fricking play uh, where he just kind of curled around uh, <laughs> a screen and sprinted to the hoop from left to right and got to his right hand over and over and over again uh, for a more or less uncontested layup. Um, right. So, and, and Mike, one of those, one of those was Tristan Thompson switching out onto him and he beat him off the dribble late in the game. Yeah. So, I mean, so Thompson, I think, I think some of this can be chalked up to, he, you know, he he didn't join the team right away. Uh, he wasn't, he didn't play in preseason. He's new to the team in general. So some of it, um, if not really all of it, should should kind of uh, erode as a problem over time. But that that has been a little bit disappointing for me. But I, I love all the things that you were talking about, Josh. Uh, I'm excited about what he uh, has brought to an extent and what he what I still expect he will bring. Uh, I do really hope he internalizes those early season roles conversations and Sopsy the ISO offense. He is an absolute black hole in the post. I didn't realize that about him, but now I know for, um, for Jeff Teague. Um, I have also been, uh, pleasantly surprised. Um, but he, he's erratic. Uh, I knew his shooting from the preseason and from the Milwaukee game, uh, was not gonna persist. It, it certainly hasn't. He's, not been hitting very well since. Um, but he got to the line 10 times against the Pacers, which was awesome. Uh, he's he's solid enough on defense. I like that he can penetrate and get into the lane. Um, so, you know, I'm I'm content with Jeff Teague on the team, uh, if nothing else. Um, what, about, what about you guys? Yeah, uh, one of the worst things that you can do as a player is to have a really amazing game, your first game out, you know, first game with a new team, whether you change teams or first game in the league. 
Jeff Teague, he, he done messed up. Just just by coming out and having a really good first game, now we expect that out of him every time. I think the next game he had, what, zero points, 0 for 5. So that is an issue with Jeff Teague. He did have a couple games last year, I think for Atlanta, where he, uh, I think, had over 30 points, right? But he is erratic, and you don't know what you're going to get from him week, at, week in, week out. And uh, just having him having him come off the bench, I think, is is a good role for him because he could be a starter one night and really blow up. And then the, the next night he could be a dud. Teague is a, has been much more of a facilitator in his previous stops. And I, I think that he's going to settle into this, this, <laughs> this backup point guard role, um, facilitating the second unit. He's, he's slippery uh, with a lot of his moves. He's not going to shoot a hundred percent from three, like he did in the preseason. Um, and he's definitely not going to shoot a hundred percent from the free throw line. Like he has did in the last game, but He'll be fine. He'll be steady. He's not going to be amazing. I'm, you know, he's got limitations for sure. Um, but he's going to play an important role. Um, Grant Williams is getting more minutes, and uh, I'm not super impressed with it. Um, and Robert Williams played really well against Indiana, but of course, all that means for Robert Williams is that he's making amazing plays and just making slightly less of the boneheaded ones. Yeah, I. I'm still high and, and optimistic on Grant Williams. Uh, he has not had the greatest start to the season. I think Stevens in general is having a really, he's managed the, basically the four bigs pretty awkwardly in my opinion. Um, I'm, I'm not enamored with starting um, Thompson and Tice at the same time. Tice for some reason, barely it felt like he barely played against the Pacers uh I'm not sure why I think he kind of deserves a longer leash um frankly uh with the way he played last year and and what he brings to the team um yeah and Grant Grant Williams I think can probably do more at the three than he's been given an opportunity to do I know he's not great as a perimeter defender um but I don't think he's as much of a liability as pigeonholing him into basically being a four or a small five, uh, which Steven seems to have done uh, does. So I, you know, um, I'm, I'm, I'm content with the Williams, the non brothers um, <laughs> so far. I, I, I still think there's a lot more uh, to both of them. I did like seeing Robert Williams really kind of competing for, for more time on the on the floor and and seeming seeming like he's really taking the game seriously um which is which is you know kind of was one of the biggest questions about him generally and and kind of has persisted as one yeah it was only a year and a half ago that grant williams was a undersized post scorer go-to guy with post moves who you know who is obviously by that description, playing a very different role than what he's playing right now. And I think that there's, you know, still a little bit of an acclimation period for him to understand, like you have some moves and you can score when you have the opportunity and, and you're just kind of giving the ball up a lot and you're just being a facilitator. And obviously that's what you've been asked to do. And you, you've changed your body a little bit. You've changed your role. You've learned how to defend on the perimeter. You know, his whole game is still, still fairly new. And as Celtics fans, like, we got to understand that Grant Williams is a perfect example of a guy whose value to the team is going to be shown outside of the box scores and outside of the stat sheet. 
at the NBA level because of his his ability to promote chemistry and and be a contagious uh, work ethic type of guy and, and a guy who's always in the right spot and trustworthy and all that stuff, kind of a model for other young players. Um, but yeah, the stats, even having saying that, the stats just aren't looking good so far in three games for him. Um, yeah, shooting 38% from the field, 28% from three, 25% from the free throw line. Uh, yeah. All right, we are uh, playing the Indiana Pacers again, this time with Victor Oladipo on Tuesday night, and then the Celtics will go to Memphis. Um, actually, they'll, they'll play Memphis at home and then go to Detroit for two games against them for to round out this week. Uh, Josh, what are you looking forward to there? Yeah, another big week, right? We had three, four games this week. We got four games this coming week. Um, obviously, the first game, let's take it one at a time. I think that the the Pacers, we just saw how tough of a team they are, you know, especially this guy, Sabonis. I mean, still only 24 years old, and DeMontis Sabonis is just having an incredible year. You know, again, small sample size, but he's averaging 24 points per game and 11 rebounds, seven assists. I mean, he's just phenomenal in that regard. Um, even my little one-and-a-half-year-old daughters, you know, hollering over at Sabonis. Hey, like this is this is a this is a tough guy. It's it's amazing to see what a spin move can do for a player in the NBA. Like obviously Giannis, that's his one move. But Siakam. when you look at guys, yeah, Siakam exactly is another guy, and some bonus. Like these guys are making all star all star careers out of the spin move and and some length and and savvy. Like it's just really impressive. And this is a tough team. Watching that Pacers game, and, and for the last couple of days, I've been thinking. If you are Lawrence Frank, would you trade Paul George right now for the package that he was traded for before, for Oladipo and for Sabonis? Is there anyone who in the around the world who would not make that trade for Paul George right now again? Uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure uh, most GMs would do that. So kudos to Pritchard for, for pulling it off before others saw it. Um, Sabonis is a monster. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how we bounce back uh, against against the Pacers. Um, you know, it's a, it's, it'll, it's an opportunity for us to kind of apply early lessons. One of the, the new, you know, uh, interesting quirks of the, the, the shortened season is these kind of almost like major league baseball style short series against single teams. So we get to apply some adjustments right away, almost like a mini playoff series. Um, and, and see if we, we can kind of address the, the issues that came up in the last game. Uh, and you know, hopefully we can put a couple wins on the board over the course of this week. We've got four games, uh, Memphis and Detroit, Detroit should be beatable teams. So, you know, it'd be nice for us to at least go two and two, if not three and one this week. Nice. Yeah. We need some wins here. Josh, take us out. Yeah. So there's a couple points that I'm going to be looking forward to, or, or one thing I'm going to be looking forward to in the next few games. Um, two games ago, we got called twice on the same play for offensive fouls in a play that secretly is an offensive foul, but that we've been getting away with it for two, three years now. And this is the pick and roll where Daniel Tice sets the screen, rolls right away, and then rolls right into his defender and screens him. It's, it's when you set a screen 
and then you roll and then you seal the guy, but that seal ends up being another screen. Like that, that's illegal. That is a box out. You're trying to get away with a, a screen with your back in a box out position. Are you, illegal. Sh- well, are you sure that's illegal, Josh? I don't think that's right. You can't screen somebody with your back and your elbows out like and your feet wider than your shoulders. Screening protocol says that you have to have your feet shoulder width apart or narrower. And you're supposed to set it with your chest, right? And oftentimes we see, see guys rescreening and kind of using their butt or their the side of their body to screen and the ref let that go. And uh, I don't know the specifics on whether that is legal or not, but you cannot screen someone with your back. It's, it's so illegal. The, the irony here is that what we got called fouls on twice in a row was not quite what you're saying. Because there are times when the guy will roll, well, the screener will roll into position. He'll be completely facing the basket, have his back completely to the guy who's trying to stay with the ball handler. Um, and, you know, Tatum in particular has benefited probably more than any other player from this action over the last couple of years, uh, at least on our team. Um, and Tice has been the principal screener. And But in, I think it was against the Nets, it got called twice. In both cases, I think it was once Thompson, once Tice, they were mm-hmm. actually kind of facing towards the ball handler, making themselves a target more than positioning for a box out, which shouldn't be a right. foul. It's a, it's a roll into a steal. Right? Yeah, so but when, it was a steal when... making themselves a target for the ball, not a box out. And to me, that shouldn't be a foul. So yeah, yeah, yeah they were impeding the guy's progress, but they were a legit offensive option to get the ball. They were just they they were in better position. They can seal that way. Yeah, this is this this is this went back to Aaron Baines. Al Horford was a master at, at it before. This the Celtics and have the been coaching doing it for staff years. coaches this. Yeah. yeah. So I I feel like we need more information. You mean this is a play that Isaiah Thomas got to the rim at? Well, you know it's it's the perfect genius play. You seal you roll into a seal. And now that guy is screened and he can't help out on the, on the driver who can easily now snake back in and get an easy layup. It's, it's like we're getting six points per game on this one play for three years straight now. And I thought for a second, because they called offensive fouls on it twice in one game, I thought, uh-oh, this is the last time we're going to see this. Like the league is, yeah. is wisening up on this play. No, dude. And then in the Pacers game, they didn't. And so no. I'm like, I'm kind of crossing my fingers. I'm really looking for it as a coach to seeing if, if we're going to continue to see this play, how we're going to continue seeing this play called. Josh, they've been running this play for like seven years, and sometimes it gets called for a foul, and then you get massive arguments from Stevens and the bench on it. Right. Well, So from my perspective, it is an illegal play and probably should not be allowed, and I've been enjoying getting away with it for as long as we have. I think we and, need uh, more information on whether it's legal or not. Yeah, that's, let's let's ask about Steve Javi. Yeah, <laughs> our, fa- our favorite official in the booth. And then I'm curious if you guys are interested to end this podcast by, you know, maybe celebrating some plays that we remember from the Nets game, uh, even though we lost that game. Were there any plays that stood out to you guys where Kyrie uh, maybe got stuffed by Jalen Brown uh, <laughs> after the whistle, or or maybe Marcus Smart? kind of charging at him when he had the ball late in the first quarter and it was obvious he was going to to dribble out the clock and, and take a final shot, you know, Kyrie was. And Marcus just charges at him and double teams him and, and forces him to give up the the ball to another player and, and kind of getting in his head a little bit. Anything else that you guys noticed about 
the interactions with Kyrie in, in, in the game that he finally came back to the Garden when it mattered in the regular season? No. <laughs> no. To me, the play, the play that I liked the best was when Jalen Brown physically rejected Kyrie's shot after the whistle. Uh, you know, as much as Kyrie wants to dap everybody up and be homies with everybody before the game and everyone's going to speak uh, to, to, you know, how bygones are bygones and, and, and we're all friends in the NBA and stuff like that, I was looking for and did see some resentment type plays, you know, within the rules, in the context of the game. And it was, it was a pleasure for me to see that uh, as Kyrie comes back. Glad you loved it, Josh. Thanks for listening, everyone. This has been Celtics Pride.